Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Here with me, as always, is my co-host, Mr. Jonathan Carter. Hello, Mr. Carter. How are you today? I'm good, Mr. Gottlieb. How are you doing? Excellent. I'm doing fantastic. I am stoked to be back talking more head games. Coming off an episode last week that I think was a very successful one uh, in terms of immediate application. A lot of people looking to rejuvenate their practice systems to to make a more concerted effort to having focused practice. And we got feedback immediately and, and questions immediately. And I just want to fire off some of these questions we've been getting in your direction and you can weigh in and let people know what you think. One thing I saw come up a bunch over the past week was people talking about optimal lengths of practice sessions. Hmm. Is there a certain time frame we should be seeking to hit with our practice sessions or is it very variable depending on what you're trying to accomplish? What are your thoughts on length of practice session? Yeah, I think it really varies. Um, I have a couple of thoughts about it. One, I think when we were talking about amping up the difficulty as we, as we get better at stuff, I mean, there's certain tasks that are just harder to do for a longer amount of time. So if you're a, a distance runner, you can amp up your practice time to add some difficulty. I think some other cool things you can do is if you, if you're in a competition, if there's a certain length that your competition tends to go matching your practice length to that might be very useful. If something's for an hour or 50 minutes, like doing your practice session to the same time, or if you know that you're studying for a big exam, that's going to be three hours, like see if you can study for three hours and, and get used to the mental fatigue that goes on with that. But there's no like magical length. You can practice shorter sessions. You can practice longer sessions. There's probably a point of diminishing returns and you should think about deliberate breaks. Uh, the exam advice as, is real interesting. As someone who went through the bar exam, which mm. is one of the most you know intense professional exams you can go through, stamina was a huge portion of preparation. You had to be able to sit and stay focused for that length of time, a difficult task for me to be sure. So that was a huge part of my practice regimen going into the bar exam was just making sure I could stay engaged for that period of time. Something else interesting that came up along those same lines was in our magic focus chat for the game podcast. We talked a little bit about this episode and it came up that magic practice is unique because when you are engaged in a magic, the gathering tournament, you have breaks between your games. You will play your round and sometimes you'll wait 30, 40 minutes to play your next round, if not longer in some instances. So you said maybe you think there could be some merit to kind of a fractured practice approach where you play a game, stop for a bit, go back, play another game, and just get into that flow state of being able to turn on your ability to play the game at a high level like that. Because that's the way it goes. You haven't been engaged in the game for 40 minutes, and now you're asked to play a very meaningful game right off the bat. Uh, And I like that idea. I I think that's a really nice approach to magic preparation in particular. Yeah. So I saw that mentioned actually in the magic context. And my advice there would be, yeah, I think practicing in 50 minute bouts, depending on what you're playing, adding in the breaks between rounds, especially similar to a longer, like you mentioned the the bar exam, how fatigue is a, is a real thing. I think a lot of people in these day long weekend, long tournaments, be it magic or or anything else, really, I, I think that fatigue definitely 
plays a part in performance. And like, you don't even guarantee that you get better at it, but you at least start to understand how your brain, how your body act under that fatigue that when when it happens in competition, at least you've been there before in practice. Right. Great advice. One other point. I saw people mentioning how this style of repetitive practice that we've talked about, this focus practice, this task-oriented practice, for example, not just playing games and assuming that's going to make you better. People said it didn't sound like much fun. (laughs) Do you have a response to that? So I I guess I don't mean to laugh if this is a serious concern for you. And I've been there. Like I think we've all practiced stuff that's, that's not fun. But I think ultimately, if you're competing something in something and you're putting the energy into it, man, I hope you enjoy it. So like certain aspects of practice might not be great. Like there were definitely drills in lacrosse that I hated, but I love the sport. And so we've talked a ton probably about our hatred of losing and our our love of competing. And for me, it was just, I knew that doing the unfun stuff made me better at the game, the fun stuff. And so for me, that was just motivating. So if you're finding practice unfun, I think that you have a couple options. One, seriously consider if you enjoy that endeavor. And if you do, think about how you can make practice fun. I mean, if you're practicing with other people, if you are rewarding yourself for something, if you're just finding a tiny aspect of it that is enjoyable, you can definitely add fun to practice. So maybe you're just not doing that yet. Yeah. To me, this speaks a lot to passion. Yeah. Because when I'm passionate about something, I don't care if the task that I'm undertaking in the moment isn't all that much fun because my broader goal overwhelms that moment. You know, it may not be fun to practice scales on guitar, but Mm -hmm. to be able to improvise and, you know, play fluidly, that's meaningful to me. That's something I care a lot about. So I'm willing to take on the burden of those scales. And I worry about capacity for success where your default response to a difficult practice regimen is that doesn't sound like much fun. Hmm. And that's okay. I'm, I'm not saying that to belittle someone, right. but there's some kind of self-analysis and, and self-awareness and honesty you have to go through when you're picking the endeavors you're seeking to compete at a high level in. And you don't have to compete at a high level in everything you do. Mm-hmm. This is something that I've only gained as I've gotten older because everything I had to do, I had to do at the absolute highest level. And if I couldn't, then I wasn't going to bother with it. And only really in the last three or four years have I been able to get back into some hobbies and some undertakings that I don't have the capacity to do at the highest possible level. Uh, Things like League of Legends and fighting games that come up all the time. I've said before, I can't be great at those things, but I've learned to appreciate that and learn to appreciate the process of growth there. But when I find something that I am endeavoring to be world-class at or exceptional at, the quest is enough to drive me through those unfun moments. And I think if you're not finding that, you have to just ask yourself, is this the right endeavor for me? Have I actually found my passion here or am I forcing kind of a square peg into a round hole and and trying to make something work that doesn't actually work for me? I think the music one's a really interesting example. I played saxophone for a very long time and you're right, skills, skills are not fun. But what's really fun is when you're playing sax, you get a solo and you can just 
like riff and just go off right. and, and, and you're comfortable and you, and there's no doubt about, uh, am I in tune? Am I in the right key? Am I matching what the rest of the band's doing? Like, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Mu- music's really interesting in that regard, right? Because it requires all of this grunt work to be able to build this foundation that allows you to actually get to the core of expression. Like until I understood improvisation, I don't think I had any real sense of music. I was just replicating and that's fun and that's great. But improvisation is this key that unlocks everything. And it requires so much grunt work over and over. Unless you're, you know, we've all seen absolute prodigies. You can just immediately riff on something. Again, that's not me. But I did the grunt work for years and years until I was able to successfully improvise on my guitar. And it felt like the instrument opened up at that point to me. Yeah, it's it's interesting with guitar. Like I... I can play a passable guitar, but I'm like by no means good. And especially if you compare it to the level at which I've played saxophone. And so anytime you hear someone just riffing or like a group of people just jamming out and they're just playing off of each other and like to see that, knowing that I knew how to do that with saxophone, but I couldn't with guitar, like it's frustrating in the moment, but you also know the experience that they're going through that they didn't just walk into a room and suddenly have that happen. There were hours upon hours upon hours practicing scales practicing chords and it's that that's like being put on display then and they're having tons of fun and it's fun to watch people do that because you know that they're in their element right and i think all these competitive endeavors are the exact same thing Mm -hmm. you know seeing lebron james compose a beautiful drive to the basket and you know switch hands in air and hit a left-handed layup that's built on a foundation of the mic and drill you know, left mm-hmm. hand, right hand, left hand, right hand, and and just enforcing those fundamentals. And if you are passionate enough about your undertaking, I think you can find the desire to take on these quote unquote, not fun tasks. I agree. And if you don't, if, if you're doing it, if you're practicing and it's not fun or the payoff doesn't seem like it's worth it, as you mentioned, not everything has to be this endeavor that you're going for like an Olympic level and some things are just casual fun. And you know what? You probably don't need to deliberately practice those things. You can just enjoy them. Right. Really good point. I think that about wraps us up for practice for the time being, you know, maybe a topic we'll come back to someday. I think there's a ton to talk about still, but I want to get on to this week's topic because it's a topic that was chosen by our listeners, follow us over at Head Games Podcast. And I think we're going to do this a lot more going forward. We're going to put out Twitter polls and allow you to pick the topic of the episode every week. And we did this for the first time leading into this week. And the winner in a fairly close vote, Mm -hmm. but still the winner, was imposter syndrome. People are desperate for us to talk about imposter syndrome. I know there's people in my family who listen to the podcast who are super excited for me to discuss (laughs) imposter syndrome. And me personally, this is something I've dealt with. So I'm excited to hear your take on the topic. So why don't we start with just your introduction to imposter syndrome? Lay it out for us. What is it comprised of for people who may not have encountered this over the years? I think it was really interesting to to watch this topic creep to the top of the poll. It's almost self-commentary on yeah, just the existence of it. So imposter syndrome is this idea that you don't belong, that eventually someone's going to figure out you're a fake. And, and I, I think a lot of us experience it, at least at some point. In particular, we're already talking about uh, all these performances, all these just daily things we do when you're excelling at those. I think that that's when you're 
most likely to encounter imposter syndrome, myself included. If, if we think back to the day that Brian reached out to me and first wanted to talk about this podcast that we're recording right now, we were talking about it. Brian gave his pitch. She, uh, we were talking about why it would be good. What would it work? Would we, would we have enough to talk about? I, I was like, man, <laughs> I hope I live up to expectations. Brian reassured me. He was very sure I, I knew what I was talking about and that like the podcast stuff will just, I'll figure it out. And I, I used the exact words. I was like, yeah, it's just this occasional imposter syndrome thing that pops up. It even hits us psych folks. And if knowing about psychology was enough, then that'd be great, but, but it's not. Right. And, and, you know, it's funny to mention it in this context because I've had a few bouts of imposter syndrome in my life, but my most recent one was when I started doing my other podcast, The Game Podcast. Mm-hmm. And the, the current host, Jerry Thompson, came to me and asked me to do the podcast with him about Magic the Gathering. And I, we've talked about my experience with Magic the Gathering a little bit here in the past. And people who listen to the other podcasts know I am knowledgeable, have played for years and years. I am very good. I can figure a lot out. But there's some accolades that I haven't yet achieved. And I'm not a regular fixture on the Pro Tour circuit. The way many other people that Jerry could have reached out to to take over the cast would have been fixtures in that Pro Tour circuit. And Jerry does have those accolades. Exactly. And he is a fixture. So I immediately was like, are you sure that I'm the right person for this? Exactly the same way you did when I asked you to do the podcast. (laughs) We just all have these moments of doubt, I think, where you wonder are you actually qualified for the undertaking you're taking on? Yeah. And I I don't think it's limited to us. I think there's countless examples of people more famous than us, if you can believe it, that also have this experience. So actors, actresses, athletes, and and if you look at the, the words they use, the quotes about them, they generally boil down to something along the lines of, I'm just waiting for someone to figure out that I'm a total fraud. So the, the idea is that all of us who experience this imposter syndrome, we're just going about life, we're doing whatever task this is, job this is, and the whole time in the back of our head, it's like, I'm a fake and I'm going to mess up eventually and someone's going to figure it out. And then everyone's going to know that I'm not qualified, I'm not good enough, I'm a fake, you name it. Yeah, I I think that's a really good summation of the topic and and a good foundation for us to move forward from. Mm -hmm. So having identified this syndrome, I I guess I want to next jump into the dangers of imposter syndrome. Because we're talking about it right now. It's something that a lot of us experience, obviously. Both you and I are giving examples. It won the poll, right? (laughs) So there's something pointing to the the fact that this is something. (laughs) Right, right. This is something that a vast number of people have concerns with and are (laughs) worried about. What are the dangers of imposter syndrome? What can it do to our psyche? How can it inhibit our performance in competitive endeavors? First, not necessarily a danger of it, but something like a sneaky is a good word for it, is it's usually a secret. No one, no one's going up and screaming from the rooftop like, hey, I'm a, I feel like I'm an imposter because we're afraid that we're going to get caught. So why would we tell other people? that were a fake. So I think that's part of why we don't recognize that others share this experience is that the moment I tell someone else, man, I don't think I belong here. 
they're like, whoa, you don't, we're afraid they're going to like point us out. Like, oh yeah, right. You don't, you don't belong here. You are a fraud. And so the danger in that is that just having these beliefs might stop us from pursuing challenges or finding opportunities that would otherwise lead us to succeed more or grow more because taking those risks, jumping into challenges, seeking opportunity is just another risk that someone else has a chance to expose us. I can totally see that. I want to kind of give a example from my own life of another time I had to deal with imposter syndrome. And it's interesting you talk about access to experiences because I'm going to talk about my experience at a large law firm now. And there's a lot of problems with large law firms. And there's often very little good, I have to say, about (laughs) my experience there. Not to say there's any problem with this particular firm I worked at. It was honestly a great place with great people, but there are issues with the system behind large law firms for the most part. But the one thing that I will give large law firms credit for is that they force you out of imposter syndrome by just making you do stuff. And (laughs) in that moment, it's incredibly overwhelming. Like I remember starting at this large law firm, you know, me, a person who grew up in a town with one traffic light and far more cows than people and (laughs) grew up fairly poor. And now I'm in a Manhattan high rise overlooking the entirety of the city and everything feels big and important and so sophisticated and so beyond my depth and overwhelming. I kind of just want to curl up and hide and not be exposed to anything and just try and sneak by and hope that nobody figures out I'm a complete and total fraud. But the large law firm would not let you do that. Mm-hmm. They, they just threw tasks at you. They forced you to do things until you had to be comfortable. I, I mean, there was the work had to get done. There was no other option and you were going to do it. And it did a lot to push me past my imposter syndrome very quickly, which I think is really bizarre when you when I reflect on how overwhelming the emotion was and how terrifying it was to be forced into those tasks. But really, it was really great for forcing me through that imposter syndrome barrier and getting me to a point where I was comfortable and I started to feel like an actual lawyer who was capable of doing these tasks. Hmm. So it was almost a sink or swim. You have to do this stuff or you're out of here. I mean, it wasn't even sinking. Sinking wasn't an option. It was Mm -hmm. just going, it was going to get done it was going to get done right. If it meant you never slept again, then that was the consequence of it. But but the work was going to get done. And so you figured out ways to do it. You figured out ways to adapt and you figured out ways to overcome. Were there other colleagues that faced that same kind of pressure? And would you feel like some of them didn't overcome this imposter feeling? I, th- I think that, I think that was rare. Okay. And I think part of that was that they brought in very qualified, very smart people. Mm-hmm. Like that was part of their approach and and their recruiting process. The other part of it was just the the impact if you failed was not that you kind of were tossed aside. It was that you were worked to the bone. Hmm. And so, you know, maybe after three years you left and a broken shell and very much worn down, but you still made it through that time period. You just worked yourself to absolute death. And maybe also the quality of work you were doing never really improved. That's Mm. one of the big things about large law firms is that there's a vast, vast 
difference in quality of work you're assigned in terms of how interesting it is, uh, in terms of how repetitive it is. And if you didn't really hit the ground running and adapt well, you would be forced into repetitive, non-interesting tasks for the entirety of your time there. Um, so you were still you were still engaged, you were still doing things, but you didn't really have the type of experiences you would expect as a you know lawyer with some high profile clients. Hmm. I'm curious if any anyone there who maybe you, you can't be in their head, so you don't know if if they have these thoughts. But was there anyone that postured like came off really? They were they were very outwardly expressive of their talent or superiority and and it felt like overcompensating at times uh yeah yeah i mean a hundred percent (laughs) and i'm sure we are all picturing someone in our heads right now like probably we all are picturing one very specific person and i am thinking of one right now yes exactly that so i think that is another danger or perhaps poor manifestation of imposter syndrome is i think if you have these beliefs that you're a fraud, you're a fake, one way of hiding that is to just be the loud, overconfident, outwardly explaining how talented you are person. Because beneath that, no one's going to take a look at the fact that you're a fraud because this whole persona, this whole outward facing bit is just so loud and overwhelming that there's no way to really push through it beneath the surface. That's a fascinating observation and one that I hadn't really made before. It was always just like, oh, this person is so impossibly full of themselves. (laughs) I can't tolerate them. But when you ask yourself, well, did that maybe come from a place of fear and weakness? They become a more sympathetic character, right? And you kind of wish uh, maybe you could have done more to get through to them and, and make them feel more comfortable and get them in a better mental place. Because that doesn't sound like a fun experience. You're so unsure of yourself that you have to loudly proclaim how great you are all the time. That mm-hmm. feels very uncomfortable and, and almost dirty. That's the word that springs to mind is yeah. you feel kind of like a huckster pitch man, right? Where you're just trying to sell someone a bill of goods mm-hmm. that you know ultimately isn't worth anything. Well, and also because you are not buying it from yourself. So you have to, you're trying to find someone who's going to buy it. Like if you're not buying your own brand of like, I'm so good, I'm confident, I'm successful, maybe somebody else will. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. But on the flip side of that, I think one way that we see this expressed that can be useful for teams, uh, like I'm thinking of uh, the team environment you're in or like a sports team or anything like that, uh, or even just friends, is the person who is really open about it and says stuff like, hey, I, I don't know that I'm the best at this or here's xyz that i'm not good at and i'm like unsure of but i think together we can figure it out because i think that type of environment welcomes mistakes and just sets this atmosphere from the beginning of you know what we might fail or we might just not be perfect but we can attempt to be a good sum of the parts and I'm okay failing in front of you so you should be okay failing in front of me and that sets like a way 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 different tone that sounds like a much healthier relationship with your faults, right? As opposed to one that's all consuming where I am a complete and utter fraud. I have nothing to offer. This is more like, hey, here are my weaknesses. Here are my possible strengths. I realize I'm operating in a field of weakness right now, so I will couch my opinion in that. 
would you say that raises to the level of imposter syndrome or is this maybe more of a way to get around imposter syndrome and how to address your feelings that could otherwise raise the level of imposter syndrome in a much more healthy manner? Probably the latter. I think it's people who do that are at the point where they maybe they're aware of it or at least they are accepting of the fact that they're not perfect. Because really imposter syndrome comes down to some aspect of perfectionism. So it's just perfectionism to the point that it's self-defeating and it's creating self-doubt and then it creates doubt in your identity, doubt in your worth. And so someone who's outwardly expressing, you know, I'm not perfect is getting themselves out of playing that on repeat in their head. It's fascinating too that this seems to manifest way more in people who have achieved a lot of their goals and achieved a lot of impressive things. I mean, you would think that someone who constantly falls short, constantly being made an example of is the type of person who would feel these feelings of doubt and just lack of self-worth, but it's really prevalent in people who have done so, so much. Yeah, well, I mean, there's perhaps it's there's more to lose at that point. But additionally, I think if we think back to when we were talking about failure, you can be successful without knowing why you were. And so if I'm a person who is by all metrics successful, but I feel like I didn't necessarily control that destiny, or maybe I attribute it to luck, or maybe I just don't recognize that I'm actually successful. Those are all things that are like manifestations of this imposter syndrome. It's crazy how much it feels like everything we talk about comes back to a sense of balance, right? Mm -hmm. Like these feelings are useful in small amounts and recognizing the role of luck in success, I think is very beneficial. I feel it's beneficial to me. It gives me respect for people who are working hard to achieve something. It gives me respect for people who haven't found their break yet. It allows me to treat all people with respect and not focus on things like titles or achievement because everyone has a lot to offer and some people just get more breaks than others. But where that equilibrium goes a little bit out of whack and you push it too far and you start believing I'm only here because of luck, it becomes problematic. And there's so many emotions and coping devices that we use that when you push them a little bit too far, they can become your worst enemies. Right. And some of it just comes down to how you compare yourself to. I mean, you can be successful, but if you're constantly comparing yourself to an unrealistic other success or Mm. perhaps where you think you should be, I think this happens a lot in upbringing. Like I grew up in a house where if I got a 93, I was asked where the other seven points went. And so if you're going through life with this idea that you need to get a 100 on stuff or and replace that 100 with whatever success looks like and what you're trying to do, if that's the, the barometer at which you're comparing everything, well, it's probably unrealistic, but it is definitely setting you up for this scenario of, huh, everyone around me is probably already at that 100 and I'm not. So whew, I'm probably a fraud. Hopefully no one finds me. Right, right. I could totally see that. Okay, so I I think we've laid a good foundation for imposter syndrome, the issues that can come from having imposter syndrome. Now we need what I pay you the big bucks for. (laughs) And, And that is the 
complete solution to all of our imposter syndrome problems. And I'm going to need it in like 20 minutes. So let's go. What do you got for me? All right. I'll wave my magic wand and we'll just call it a day right now. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Good luck, everyone. So I think it comes down to our relationship with data. And that sounds weird. So I'll explain myself. We're, We're going through life. We're having successes. We're having failures. And our brain is constantly filtering what we do with those. And so if we have this belief that we are a fraud, guess what? Our brain is going to help us support that automatically outside our control, no intention behind it. I'm hinting at this idea. It's called the confirmation bias, which I think just about everyone has probably heard mentioned, maybe used right, maybe used wrong. I'm sure you've heard the term before. Yes. Okay. So confirmation bias, quite simply, is just this filter that our brain has that causes us to see evidence, remember evidence, and value evidence that confirms confirmation, what we already believe. And then at the same time, we don't see, we don't remember, and we don't value evidence that would disprove what we're believing. So if we take it in the example of imposter syndrome, if I'm going through life with this idea, this belief that I don't belong, I'm a fraud, someone's going to find me out, well, then Every single time something happens that would prove that, you know what, maybe I, I earned this success or maybe I do know stuff. Maybe I am successful. My brain is automatically going to just either not notice that maybe it's not going to get committed to memory or if I do commit it to memory, I'm probably not going to put a lot of stock in it because if I did, that would counteract my belief and I believe that. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep believing that. And at the same time, if there's stuff that confirms that I am a fraud, oh man, I'm going to hold on to that stuff and I'm going to remember that and I'm going to put a ton of value into it because that already supports my belief. And I'm making this sound like it's intentional and it'd be great if it was because it'd be a lot easier to fix, but our brain is just doing this on autopilot. And the stronger and stronger these beliefs get, the easier it is for our brain to just go on autopilot with this filter. So let me ask a question, and you may not have the answer to this prepared. That's fine. One of the things I always find really interesting when we talk is when you're able to offer kind of evolutionary reasons for our brain having developed these mechanisms, which have now turned against us. Is there an evolutionary reason why our brain should want to pursue confirmation bias as a means of filtering information? I think it just simply we'd be exhausted if it didn't. If if right. I'm going through the day and I have to consciously filter all the data that's being presented to me, my brain just can't handle that. We establish beliefs and unless we actively decide if they're working or not, our brain's just going to put them into the right bucket. So, all right, you believe you're good at math. Let's remember all the times that math was easy. Let's not remember the times it wasn't unless we really think about it. All right, cool. Good at math. Keep going. And we don't do that intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. So just a complete simplification mechanism. I can buy that. Uh, It seems like the brain has a lot of work going on. I (laughs) I don't fault it for wanting to make its job easier. Yeah. Remember to keep the lungs going. It's okay if you, if you think I'm a failure. Right. Right. We'll take what we can get. (laughs) But having, having identified that imposter syndrome is really feeding off this confirmation bias 
what do we do with that information? How do we start turning against our own confirmation bias? Uh, I think, first of all, talk to somebody else. Like we're doing now, like we talked about at the beginning of this cast, if you're not talking to other people, you don't recognize that others have these shared experiences. But more importantly, someone else can tell you you're crazy. <laughs> like If I have this belief and what I mentioned Brian did when he reached out about the podcast, it was a much nicer way of saying you're crazy. But he pointed out that I have a ton of experience. I know what I'm talking about. He has the utmost confidence, wouldn't be doing this cast with me if he was at all doubting my talent. Bouncing your ideas off of someone else, even just helping them weigh evidence for you is super useful. And I'm glad that we're playing a part in that role. And I think I've shared a lot about my own experience in this episode. And I think that's a huge part of this episode. Like that's part of the treatment in my eyes anyway, is just talking about these Mm -hmm. experiences and understanding that, you know, I've met so many people who've accomplished such incredible things, you know, be it very successful lawyers or very successful magic players or people who have some other form of celebrity, very successful musicians back when I used to work in a nightclub and we have, you know, these huge artists come in and, and you meet with them. And I have seen this echoed in all walks of life, all types of people, all levels of success. Everyone experiences it. And the way I've started thinking about my own experiences with imposter syndrome is I just look at it as what if everyone's just awful at everything? And that's what it honestly amounts to. Like, I think we are all just in some way, shape, or form faking it till we make it. We're all just trying to get through. We are all leaning on our experience the best we can. And in some ways, no matter who you are, you're probably not perfect at what you're trying to accomplish. It's just the way it is. There's always someone better and we're imperfect beings trying to do the best we can. And that's something I've really held on to over the years is that everyone's kind of faking it together and we're all just trying to get by. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because I'm thinking back to some of the League of Legends pros I've worked with, and it's just this environment where they say that they're all trash, like they're all bad. And they're like, if you're in Diamond, you realize that everyone's bad, but you're better than them. And then when you get to Master, you realize like everyone there was bad, but you're still bad and you're you're not as good as other people. And I think in a way it acts as a method of just putting it out there like hey we're we're all imperfect we have things to work on but also just it, it's like it's almost comforting and it it breeds this atmosphere of constant improvement and that's probably why they're succeeding just owning the fact that everyone constantly has things to improve and i think if you look at the elite of the elite of the elite in any realm they're people who are seeking constant improvement and if, if those people are, like if the best in the world is is looking to improve, maybe you should do that too. And they also probably think that they're a fraud or have at one point in their trajectory. Yeah, that same sentiment, we're all bad sentiment. I think it varies from time to time, but at least a few years ago, it was super prevalent in the professional magic community as well. Mm-hmm. I think these things ebb and flow. It's it's like a, a method of discourse that people have signed on to. Um, and it seems like right now, it's not as in vogue to talk about how bad you are at magic. 
Uh, but it'll come back around and everyone is still having these feelings and, and these moments of self-doubt at the top of the game. I promise that. Right. Yeah. 2018 is not cool, but 2019, maybe it'll be cool to be bad again. Right. And so talking to someone else, absolutely useful uh, for all the reasons we mentioned. I think they, another person acts as the ultimate filtering of, of evidence for you. A warning in there is if you talk to someone who has the same exact belief as the one you're trying to fight, that's not going to work too well because their brain is going to filter the data in a very similar way. And that's probably not going to work. In the world where you don't have someone that you want to talk to about this, just write stuff down. And so one thing that I think is particularly useful for this imposter belief is keep a written tally of the stuff you succeeded at, your achievements. And more importantly, like, like if you're doing it today or tomorrow after listening to this and, and, you, and you're trying to think back, maybe you don't know all of the achievements, but think about where you are today and, and what would be notable and write down the steps you took to get there. Because if you can think about the steps that you took to lead to your success, it helps you recognize that it wasn't luck that along the way there were some deliberate decisions you made and those decisions led to your success and you're not a fraud. What a callback to our first episode. I mean, how well does this tie in with gratitude journaling, which is essentially doing this in a lot of ways? You're talking about a more focused type of journaling right now, but gratitude journaling could very much point to these same things. I'm happy I did this well today. And you know, if you're still keeping up with that from episode one, Props to you. You're doing a better job than I am, admittedly. <laughs> but I think it's a, a really nice callback and just part of this whole kind of system of mental health that you're putting forth to your listeners right now and, and a way they can really start appreciating the things they've accomplished in life. On the gratitude journaling, I think another small part of it that some people have struggled with is the daily affirmation. And I think this is a great tie-in there is if you're working on either counteracting this belief that you're an imposter or if just if you have a goal in mind, like a success you're looking for, just write something to yourself that is the embodiment of what you would need to be to feel successful and just write that same thing or a version of it every single day until you get it in your head that you're not just lucky, that your success is tied to something you've done, something you know, something you're capable of doing. That's a really cool piece of advice. I like that a lot. I know you wanted to talk about a very important aspect to this whole struggle with imposter syndrome. And that is the fact that if this is a continuing issue and something that these techniques are, are not doing an effective job of managing, there's a need for further mental health treatment. Don't you agree? Yeah. So everything I'm talking about is if this idea of an imposter syndrome is just impacting your performances. So you're trying to get better at something and you constantly have this belief and maybe it's not actively getting in the way, but I think we can agree based on what we were talking about that it's not a productive line of thinking. That's fine. If it's just a small, like we all experience it from time to time and it's completely normal. I think we get that. I'm um, just listening to, to to Brian and I talk about our experiences. But if you find that this is a deep-rooted belief, it's something that you're waking up every day, week after week, month after month, there is nothing wrong. In fact, 
it, I think it, it should be applauded when people seek proper help. And there are people, much like I mentioned in another episode, that have more qualifications than me to deal with these clinical types of concerns. And I highly recommend that for anyone who ha- who's having this recurring belief and, and it's imp- impacting their daily life. Yeah, this is the first time this topic has kind of come up on our cast. And honestly, I think I regret not finding a way to talk about it sooner. And I'm I'm positive you're going to agree with me here. I'm not even going to check with you. <laughs> Mental health treatment is awesome. It's a fantastic, beautiful thing. Uh, I've sought mental health treatment before. Absolutely. I've, I've seen a psychiatrist. It was beneficial without a doubt. I recommend if you are having mental health issues, it's such a positive, fantastic thing. If it's available to you, please, please, please take advantage of it. I hate the stigma that surrounds mental health treatment. It's horrible. And we need to work really hard as a group, as a society to overcome any stigma attached to it. That's why I want to put my own experience out there. If you're having mental health issues, talk to someone about them. Don't rely on us. We're here to help. We want to help with your mental mm-hmm. health issues. We want to help you improve as a competitor, but that's no replacement for appropriate mental health treatment. Nope. I've studied psychology for years and I've sought help before too. So the, just look for resources. If you need help finding stuff, feel free to reach out to me. I can help point you in the right direction. Absolutely. Uh, so do we have any other techniques we want to discuss for coping with imposter syndrome before we hit the road here? No, just to recap, I think the the two biggest things are find someone to talk to, just have them objectively, that being very important, weigh the the evidence for your belief. So just take a look back at your successes, your failures, the actions you've been taking and have that person be the the judge for you of whether or not you're a fraud. They're probably- If I can interject for one second too, I I think the other side of this equation is important as well. Be a resource for people in your life who may be struggling with this situation. Talk them through their accomplishments. Give them the evidence that defeats their confirmation bias. There's a lot we can do for our partners, for our friends, for our family to help them overcome their imposter syndrome. I, I think- the people close to you are very important in overcoming this situation. Yeah. And if you want to get ahead of it, when people do stuff that's successful, point it out to them and tell them what they did. That just helps them build the evidence to counteract this belief from the get-go. And then just over time, I would suggest it, as you experience these these feelings, this, this thought that that you you don't belong, someone's going to find you out, take stock of what you've done up until that moment. I guarantee you have some things to be proud about and you can point out that you are not a fraud, that you're likely in a situation much like me being invited to this podcast because I have some stuff to talk about and can do so for a very long time. But I think we've probably hit a good duration of that for today. I think so too. We are going to, like I said, post topics for next week up on our Twitter account. Follow Head Games Podcast. You'll be able to vote on what you want us to talk about next week. And we'll be here to play some more Head Games. Thank you.